Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Word with Dr. Michael David Clay. We're in the middle of a very long, <laughs> maybe too long, uh, a very, I should say it this way, e- extensive discussion on um, certainly substance use disorders. Actually, the uh, official terminology is substance-related and addictive disorders. According to the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, the fifth edition, published by the American Psychiatric Association, um, we have covered opioids uh, as far as one of those substances that falls uh, in that general category, or a diagnostic category of substance-related and addictive disorders. We did that because in our prior podcasts, we've noted that uh, opioids, heroin specifically, is uh, one of the most addictive substances or used substances in the United States. Uh, It tops the list. Uh, Second to that being cocaine. Nicotine is third. And then rounding out the top 10 is marijuana. We also are discussing substance-related and addictive disorders because folks have a hard time giving up the substance. Uh, Stop using it. There's an 85% relapse rate within the first year. Uh, That's very high, very significant. Uh, We've also decided to uh, address this particular category of disturbance, disorder, uh, behavioral health concern, because it is just that, such a concern. As in prior podcasts, we've learned that part of the diagnostic criterion includes all sorts of trouble, problems uh, that go along with the use of an opioid, as well as we'll find out with cocaine and marijuana. Uh, and generally speaking, opioid use disorder begins with the one primary, a primary uh, criterion of a problematic pattern of opioid use leading to clinically significant impairment or distress. And that use includes, again, most of the major areas of one's life, social, occupational, financial, health, and legal problems or trouble. And with that, that a person, an individual who's using these opioids cannot stop the use of opioids. They continue to use them despite all the problems, uh, trouble that goes along with it. And as of uh, catching us up current or making us current, last podcast we ended uh, with the idea of withdrawal as being one of those criterion specifically uh, that's related to uh, opioid use. Uh, When you do stop using the opioid because, as with tolerance, there has been a need for increased amounts to achieve the same effect, and with that, a uh, marked diminished effect with continued use of the same amount of the opioid substance as a substance. But if you've got tolerance where your body has gotten used to using opiates, the opioid, When you remove the opioid, the way the body compensates, and that really is what physiological tolerance is, the body has made adjustments. 
uh, in terms of its basic core homeostatic functioning so that the body is always trying to target normal, whatever normal is. If you put a substance in that uh, changes either on a biochemical level or all is biochemical, but measured either biochemically or behaviorally, uh, it changes the balance, throws the balance sort of uh, out of, uh, again, just that idea of, of balance, puts it out of balance, then what the body's going to do is try to get it back to what it knows, speaking as if the body is a, an entity it knows is uh, where balance should be. When that happens, you go through withdrawal. And the withdrawal characteristically is, as you might imagine, the entirely opposite of what the drug effect is. So if the drug would otherwise push you toward more of a suppression, then the withdrawal is going to be more of activation or excitability. If it slows you down in that way, then withdrawal is going to include some degree of speeding up or agitation and with that uh, a certain degree of irritability. Uh, and when you measure that physiologically, neurologically, uh, anything that slows you down then runs the risk of overexcitability. And uh, with the neurological system, as it controls all the other aspects of bodily functioning or as part of that core, again, the central nervous system, management and regulation, uh, a body functioning toward the end of meeting all bodily needs, uh, adaptability, survival, to be overly excited could risk a lot of things. Uh, uh, in this case, with opioids, it's generally not uh, some sort of a, uh, a, a high potential for lethality, as with uh, alcohol, for instance. If you go cold turkey, up and quit using alcohol after developing a quite high tolerance for the al alcohol, bodily tolerance for the alcohol, you risk seizures, which could render you uh, in, in some way unable to survive. You die. Uh, there's lethality attached to it. Opiates really don't do that. Where the lethality probably manifests itself the most is, though, where you continue to increase the amounts as with tolerance to get the desired effect to the point where the body can't function anymore. It, it uh, causes the person to uh, respiratory arrest. The body the, the brain, the body, the central nervous system stops working and the individual uh, then dies as a result of not being able to do what it needs to do to stay alive. Now, having said all of that, most of you would then be aware by this point, as much you've listened to the two prior podcasts on this subject, that uh, what opioid use disorder is, whether you might be, as we used to call it, just abusing the substance or whether you might also then not only abuse and where there is dependence, there is always some dimension of abuse, be dependent upon it. But if you've been dependent or categorized or, or classified, uh, diagnosed as opiate use disorder, it, it includes then not just the idea that you're actively engaged because of relapse prevention, or not relapse prevention, but the relapse rates, which does lead to relapse prevention, at least in terms of treatment, but because of relapse rates and the difficulty it is, because it is one of the most addictive substances used or abused in the United States, the number one on the list, 
What that also means, though, is, is that it is not only something that you're presently in, but you always have to measure that in terms of potential to have the same sort of difficulties again in the future. Why? Because once an addict, once diagnosed addict, you are always an addict. You might go into some state of what they call remission, where you're not using anymore, but your body has already demonstrated a genetic predisposition, meaning some sort of factor that makes you different than everyone else, or not everyone else, but others who may not be as inclined to become addicted. Uh, And with that, then you've experienced addiction, which includes then not only all this bodily in a, in a, um, lack of uh, balance or throwing your bodily systems out of balance, but it takes a very long time for those systems to get back to what we would call, again, the set point or normal. And then the qualifier on that is, if at all, they, it may not. The system may not return back to normal. So that always puts you at, again, elevated risk. Uh, If you've done something before, if it's progressed, as with the disease model, you're then always going to be at a higher risk of doing it again than somebody who had never has. Why? (laughs) Because if they never have, there's a good chance they may be one of those somebodies that never will. But if you have, and then it's gotten to the place where you're now put, again, in that category of someone who is dependent or abuse even, your chances are you may do it again, physiologically, as we're speaking to, but also psychologically. If once more you've chosen to use a substance to escape, to manage some sort of situation, circumstantial stress, some sort of uh, symptom in the way of self-medicating, once having given yourself permission to do that, it is very difficult the second, followed up by the third and fourth time, as with relapse doing that, to really be able to say no to yourself. Now, it is true, the more you relapse, the greater the chances are going to be, again, the caveat here, if you survive that you will eventually come off of the drug. Why? Because relapse is, the risk of relapsing is so high. Once more, 85% relapse within the first year. Uh, It is so high that most people are going to go through not one, but several relapses before they finally come up with an effective answer. But at the same time, as much as that seems like then that relapse is good, you may not survive them. And certainly the mortality and the lethality rate is so great or significant enough, why would you want to risk that, continuing to take that chance? Primarily because, again, you're an addict. But once diagnosed, we're going to presume then you're at elevated risk of doing it again. So what we say is, rather than saying, oh, well, that's over, good and done with, great, let's move on, Unfortunately, that's what a lot of, when I treat addicts, that's their mentality, oftentimes, possibly part of their denial, 
but also just the simple fact that there's usually a big mess or a lot of circumstance and situation that needs to be addressed and cleaned up, and they would just as soon forget about it than deal with it. And again, that fits into that model of avoidance, not really addressing the problem. In psychological counseling, psychology terms, that's really what psychotherapy is about as it complements anything that might be done more in, more in regard to medicines, and we're going to discuss that here in a moment. There are medicines, particularly with opiates, that can be used to help facilitate recovery, reduce the incidences of relapse, but until a person understands, comprehends, learns from, uh, gets out of the denial, faces the reality of not only whether they are an addict or not, but the problems as evidence of that, uh, all the problems validate the fact that they are an addict and have had an addiction to this particular substance, but unless they address that, then they probably will not effectually learn from that. And if you don't learn from that, or as your body might have been conditioned to using a substance to alleviate whatever associated physical or psychological pain, again, we've discussed such things in a prior podcast and prior podcasts about this uh, concerning this subject. If that has been something that the body has relied upon, the mind has relied upon as a way to manage those symptoms, that in and of itself becomes a go-to conditioned response in terms of coping. That's the way the person has chosen, rather than, again, facing, working through, addressing other ways or coming up with other ways of addressing the stress, the problems that are in their life that represents that stress, they turn to quick answers. They look for immediate gratification, and they do not develop really strong skill sets including mental attitude, paradigm of I want to face it, I want to work through it. It's resilience. All these things are somewhat weak. They're not necessarily able to think as empirically well as someone who has not been subject to substance abuse chemical dependency. Again, substance abuse chemical dependency or substance-related and addictive disorders does not mean that you're good at coping it just means, though, that if you don't turn to a substance, what I'm trying to say is if you don't turn to a substance to fix the problem, you're going to have to come up with other solutions. Hopefully, one of those would be the empirical model, experientially to learn from your mistakes, to make corrections, to understand and comprehend the recognized situations and circumstances that would represent a trigger or an opportunity, as a trigger might be, to turn back to the substance and use it again. So once we've made that call that the person is opioid dependent, then we also have to identify whether or not they are in some early stage of remission where the risk is at, at still at an elevated level of relapse or possibly in a longer, more protracted, sustained state of remission. So we have to specify if in early remission, after all the criteria for opioid use disorder has been met, none of the criteria have been met for at least three months, but for less than 12 months, with the exception 
of craving or a strong desire to urge or urge to use the opioids may be met. So what that basically is saying or what, what that is saying is that it's an early remission if it's been at least three months since the person has actively used, but less than a year, 12 months, but you can still have, and, and we've discussed this again in earlier podcasts, a craving. And cravings usually hit about four to six months post the, the cessation or the stopping of the use of the substance and can continue. But if you've gone past the three months, you might still get the craving, and even so, up to the 12-month mark. But if you make it to the 12-month mark, then it goes from early remission to a state of sustained remission. Now, sustained remission is after the criterion, the full criteria for opioid use disorder has been met. None of the criteria has been met at any time during a period of 12 months or longer. And again, except for the craving or the strong desire urge to use. Now, here we go. So, does that tell you anything about why opiates are so difficult to come off of? If up to 12 months, they can only call it some sort of partial early remission, and even after 12 months, in sustained remission, you're still experiencing the same cravings as you experienced in early remission, the idea that the cravings are hard to shake and go away then stands out. It's obvious. That is, generally speaking, the greatest trigger to a person's relapse. Now, all kinds of situations and circumstances can come along that causes distress, stress, and can aggravate, burden one's ability to cope, uh, represent an opportunity to, to look for a quick fix, which we've already said in today's podcast can be just as much learned as it is physiologically conditioned. It can be the go-to way of coping. It can become even part of your personality, such that not only in terms of drug use, but many other things in life, uh, an individual may look for the easy way out to, to do something very quick, to do something that removes the pain uh, in such a fashion that they don't have to deal with it any longer than would be necessary to either take the substance or to get the quick fix, whatever that might be. And it's not that there is a correlation between more work, more pain, more work, more effort, and recovery, but that, generally speaking, changing lifestyles, changing the way a person addresses life, including then how they cope with day-to-day -day struggles and stress, that is something that takes time. There is no such thing as an addictive personality in the American Psychiatrics Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which seems to me a bit odd because really when you're looking at it, that's probably the reason why it takes so much time. Certain habits, if done over a specified prolonged period of time, become part of your personality. We are all creatures of habit Presumably at some level, to some degree, that can be very adaptive. 
Uh, you don't have to attend to everything as if it's the first time you've done it. Some things you can do without really devoting much conscious thought or energy toward it. However, when you've picked up a maladaptive coping strategy or style, mentally, psychologically, behaviorally, psychologically, you need to really put some sort of energy into breaking that pattern, counter-conditioning, changing the paradigm, slowing it down so that you don't go into what might be called, not clinically so, but colloquially so, autopilot. If you go into autopilot and you have a history of addictions and you have this dimension in your life of turning to things that otherwise are easy, quick fixes, if you don't apply some considered conscious, again, attention or intention to change it, you're probably going to default to it. And even then, most of us, when overly stressed, when we can't really sustain something of a new way of looking at or a new formula or a new strategy or a new method of addressing a particular challenge, we're going to resort to what we know. And it's regressive and it's primitive, but in that moment, that's all that we have. We've not been able to rightly so establish any new patterns and we default back to the old ones. Which then brings up this other dimension, too, of remission. As much as it's the individual, it would also be the social culture um, element that is as equally as important. If you're still hanging out with people or associating with people who do the same sort of maladaptive behaviors that you're trying to undo, then you're at great risk of them um, by proxy of being around them even, contaminating your best efforts to change. They're not going to be cooperative so much. There's possibly going to be conflicts that are involved. Uh, there's much to be said about peer pressure, social pressures to conform. It's easier <laughs> when you're sitting there and you're going through all this struggle of trying to come up with answers and solutions and, and, and you're having to be patient about it and you don't get immediate gratification the person that you're hanging out with is saying, well, just use this. And then they do. And immediately they appear to be relaxed and calm and they've checked out. It's very difficult for someone who has known that personally to resist that. The advice again, most generally is you have to change those social environments as well. Most of our learning too, as we grow and as we mature over the course of our life, has to do with social learning. Again, we are social creatures. Uh, and basically the point being, we're going to be somewhat reactive to the social environment around us. That's how we've been designed. Uh, there's an, a, an evolutionary, if I might call it that, uh, a benefit. It's adaptive to get along with people. And conformity is in some measure or way getting along with people. But if it's obviously patently bad coping, then when you try to change that, you're not going to get along with them. You're not going to conform. But if an individual can only go so long without changing then that social environment before even their best will and intention to do it differently is going to start to be once more compromised or eroded.
and they're going to default to what not only is presently going on, maladaptive, not, not doing it the right way, but probably going to be very familiar as in similar to the ways that they did in the past, which then also included for the addict the use of an illicit substance or a substance in an illegal sort of way to get an effect, to feel good, to remove pain, to deal with problems. So, if you understand that idea of early remission and sustained remission, then this next idea or qualifier is whether or not would be make sense, more sense, is whether or not the person would be on some form of or engaged in some form of maintenance therapy. I say on because maintenance therapy typically is the substitution of another substance that will aid in reducing, again, going back to the cravings, the cravings, which we have said, and even this podcast, is the number one trigger, in my opinion, for a relapse. And these social habits and poor coping skills and personality styles. So what takes place, though, on maintenance therapy is the individual is taking a prescribed agonist medication so that none of the criterion for opioid use is met for that class of medication, except tolerance to or withdrawal from the agonist. So, what is an agonist? It's the opposite or antonym to protagonist. A protagonist would be something or someone who is against you, uh, would fight with you, would go against what you want. Now, again, I've just described a situation kind of like that when you're wanting to change, but the people around you really don't, or they're not as inclined, or they don't recognize the change they need to do in order to facilitate your change, which kind of gets more into codependency. Didn't really talk so much about that a moment ago, but can, probably will in the near future, speak about that a little bit more uh, in detail. But those individuals can become then protagonists and try to make you not use if you are an addict. Antabuse, as an example, is a medicine that's given to alcoholics. How it works, though, is rather than changing what otherwise the alcohol does in the person's system, which is to, again, sort of sedate or relax the individual, uh, kind of gum up the central nervous system so it does not work, suppresses excitability of the axon, dendrite, nervous, the neuron, uh, the central nervous system firing in general. What antabuse does is makes you deathly ill. If you drink on antabuse, you're going to get sick. Now, it won't stop you from drinking. It doesn't do anything to curb on a physiological or psychological level, maybe directly, maybe indirectly psychologically, because that's really it. It's more aversion therapy. It's so bad sick that any thoughts of drinking will include being so sick and you won't do it. That's aversion therapy. However, an agonist is something that does the same thing as the substance. So, 
if an opioid does this to your body and you're addicted to it, you've developed tolerance and then withdrawal when you don't have it, and then withdrawal includes sustained periods of craving that usually confounds your best efforts at a remission or sobriety, as it's also called, being in a state of full remission or sobriety, then you need to do something to keep from going through withdrawal. The agonist does something. It actually does, in part, maybe in full, the very same thing. It goes to the very same place in the body that the opioid goes to. It affects the body in the very same way the opioid does, including some sustained measure of tolerance, and therein, when you stop it, a risk of withdrawal. Now, there are two primary substances, medicines, that are used in maintenance therapy when it comes to opioids. They're coming out with new ones every day, but for the sake of our discussion, where we are at this particular moment in time, we're just going to discuss the two. There is methadone, and then there is suboxone, or buprenorphine, combined with naloxone. Now, methadone is a synthetic opiate. It has nothing else in it. Methadone has been around for a long, long time. It again, I say again because we've discussed this previously as well, was the chosen go-to of the federal government in response to heroin and the heroin particularly epidemic of the 60s and possibly even into the early 70s. Instead of treating heroin withdrawal and tolerance, opioid, heroin being an opiate, dependence in psychotherapeutic or psychological counseling or counseling psychology terms, the federal government said if if they're not going to be able to do it in that way, because of all the physiology, which is legit, then we're going to give them methadone. But what we're going to do is we're going to control the distribution of methadone, but make it so regularly accessible uh, that the person, readily accessible and regularly accessible, that the person can get the methadone easier than they can buy the heroin. We're going to devalue the heroin. Hopefully, it'll cause it to dry up in an illegal illegal market sense. And we'll direct all of these individuals to clinics where there will be a doctor who will supervise the prescription of the methadone as well as the administration of it. Methadone is, many people's opinion, comparable to heroin. Some might say even better. So, when you use the methadone, you're not going to have tolerance and withdrawal, or withdrawal in the sense of the tolerance, a reaction to stopping the medicine, because you're not. But you are going to have homeostasis establish intolerance some sort of degree of normalcy of functioning. 
In the same way, though, with methadone, you have to increase the dosing to get the same effect or the tolerance will precipitate some measure of withdrawal. So you have to do some tweaking of that along the way. There are periods of um, drug, uh, taking a break, call it drug holiday, where you go off or you reduce so that you can increase capacity uh, at some point in the future. But for the most part, there is, even with the methadone, a ceiling as high as you can go because there is a point of, again, lethality with all opioids. If you take too much, your body stops working. There are still many, many, many methadone clinics. Used to be they only did methadone. Now, however, they're doing Suboxone because the movement will hopefully go from more methadone prescriptions to more Suboxone if it hasn't already, the predominant being the Suboxone. I'll explain in a moment why. But they offer psychological counseling. They offer counseling psychology and psychotherapy at methadone clinics, but the likelihood that that's going to change any behavior patterns, especially since it's no different than when you're using a drug, especially when the effects of the opioid uh, really alter the way that you can process data, the way that you do process data, it removes the pain so that the pain itself of going off of a substance or even the pain that goes along with trying to cope with life is taken away in a way that the motive to do any work besides take the medicine, which is, again, the quick relief, is also removed. There's no incentive then, once you take the methadone, to do any more. You don't gain better coping skills. You really have difficulty changing your lifestyle, with the exception that you may appreciate, if you are one of those individuals that uses methadone, not having to deal with a criminal element when you purchase it. You don't have to buy it from a drug dealer. You don't have to buy it off the street. You don't have to rob, cheat, or steal to get the money to buy it because government medical card, uh, Medicare, will pay for the methadone program. So it, it is legitimate, uh, medically necessary intervention for a disease called opiate use disorder. That's how it's justified. But now that we have the Suboxone, it is a game changer in this sense. Yes, the Suboxone or the buprenorphine is an agonist. But in the Suboxone, particularly, you combine that with, and there are other medicines that go by different names that have the same sort of combination. But in that, what you have is you also have naloxone, which is a blocker. So some of the receptor sites that otherwise were open and receiving at the central nervous system, again, the neuron level of the opiate are still available. Buprenorphine is a synthetic opiate, just like methadone, except the buprenorphine has a limited potential for effect because it has restricted access to those axons, dendrites, across the synapse, where the actual 
chemical, the buprenorphine, the synthetic opiate plugs in to the receptor site so that its potential for addiction is theoretically reduced. Could say approximately cut in half. Why? Because the other half potentially has been filled with the naloxone, which goes to the exact same receptor sites, except the naloxone doesn't do anything but occupy the space that the buprenorphine or the synthetic opiate would go to, thus making it impossible for the synthetic opiate to have an effect. So when you take the suboxone, you, again, theoretically reduce the risk of tolerance, cut it in half, and with that, possibly even eliminate it. Because the way that those two work in combination, the person can only receive so much benefit because of what we call potentiation, which is the potential for the nervous system to fire. Again, it's measured neuron by neuron, but it's a grouping. If enough neurons fire, then you get a response, excitatory response across the central nervous system, and then it has its ultimate end response, behaviorally, psychologically, biochemically, bodily, all of that. But with the buprenorphine, not being able to get that person in that place of that kind of a response, they really don't have then the risk of tolerance. They really also then don't have the risk of withdrawal as long as they're taking the two substances, buprenorphine and the naloxone, together in combination. However, if you remove one or both, and I'll explain what I mean by that here in a moment, you are going to then start to feel withdrawal just as you would as you would have tolerance to an opioid, as you would have then some tolerance to methadone and maintenance therapy. You will go through withdrawal when you discontinue those. If you give up the suboxone, you will go through withdrawal. Will it feel as bad? Now, some measure of common sense would say probably not because we've already theoretically reduced the, the effect, right? Cut it in half, if not eliminated totally, the potential to get high for that tolerance to result in any sort of withdrawal as long as you're on the suboxone or taking the buprenorphine. However, because there's only half the receptor sites available, when you go off of that, you're going to, because of potentiation, fire enough of the single neurons and then that grouping to go through of the nervous system or the neurons in that make up the nervous system to actually throw yourself into a withdrawal that is potentially comparable to methadone or a straight opiate with nothing else to mitigate that because the body is an all or none sort of uh, response or reaction when it goes through withdrawal. That's really what potentiation is. It's either enough to fire, and if it hits the threshold, it's an all-fire. And if it doesn't, it's a non-fire. The naloxone keeps it below that measure of firing. But when the naloxone is removed and the buprenorphine is removed, you go through withdrawal unless you cut that down. You reduce that, which is called titration, in small measures. 
very, very small increments so that by the time that you do stop using the medication assist, you know, the agonist, then you're not going to go through withdrawal. You'll have the best chance then at coming off of that without withdrawal. You will likely still have cravings though, and that is where possibly there is even then a need for an extended dose of naloxone to block all the receptor sites to eliminate the cravings. Vivitrol is a brand of a particular medicine that otherwise will address that. I'm not going to get into much of that in our discussion other than to say it's there. I don't know that it's FDA recommended at this point. I think that the industry, as best as I understand it, <clears throat> excuse me, and a good bit of my work includes treating individuals with medication assist assistance treatment, counseling psychology, but also working with doctors and nurse practitioners and prescription of the Suboxone particularly, I believe it is a good choice, if not recommended course, to include that for another six months just to get out of that window, that four to six month high risk window of cravings. The 85% of the relapses in the first year, it's because of, again, the cravings and that window of four to six months where it's most intense. The body takes long, long time to make readjustment to not having the opiate. However, what many people do is they feel so good on the Suboxone. They don't understand all of these things that I'm trying to explain. They get to a point where they think they can go off of it. <clears throat> Excuse me again. And then they try and then they go through cold turkey. They go through extreme withdrawal. An example, when individuals are overdosing to the point that they're dying or have expired, naloxone can oftentimes bring them back because it goes in the system and it displaces the opiate and it, again, occupies that receptor site on the, in the synapse from the axon to the dendrite dendrite of one to the axon of the other neuron. What will happen, though, is the half-life of the naloxone is a little longer even than that of the buprenorphine, which basically means the naloxone will stay in your system longer than the buprenorphine. So again, if you go cold turkey, just up and quit, is really what I'm trying to, to say when I describe it as cold turkey. What will happen is you will even have Again, a worse effect possibly than when you went off an opiate. Because in the same way that one would get a naloxone shot if they're overdosing, when they come out of the overdose, they are, as they say, <laughs> fighting mad. Because it is a jolt to your system. It is a rebound effect. It is extreme. It's to the opposite side of, again... Whatever the effect is of the opiate, when you go through withdrawal, we said a few moments ago, you go in the opposite direction. This will throw you in even a more intensified way to that same side of the withdrawal in terms of what we see, what happens to the body. And it will be incredibly painful. 
and the person is incredibly going through an incredible experience of withdrawal, upset, agitated, irritable, all of those things, because opiates tend to sedate, though they're not sedatives, they do tend to suppress. An agonist is going to go the opposite direction, and in that sense, the naloxone is an agonist. Remember, we said that, not agonist, but protagonist. We were discussing that earlier. The naloxone is a protagonist, not agonist, so it will throw them in the opposite direction. So you have to be really careful. You have to follow the directions if you're going to be in medication-assist treatment for opioid use, opioid use disorder, or you run the risk of having not only the same, but worse. And a lot of rumors are floating around that Suboxone is worse than methadone to come off of. And to some extent, it's true, but only if you don't follow the directions on how to titrate or cut that or reduce that back. One other quick word. If a person were to find Suboxone illegally or Suboxone illegally, as they would otherwise be an opioid use disorder, someone who's using opiates, who has become tolerant, it can help them with their withdrawal. And it is probably preferable to going through withdrawal, but at the same time, it just pushes or kicks the can down the road. It just pushes that back a bit, and they either have to stay on the Suboxone or they're going to go through something like the opioid withdrawal was, and the reason why they took the Suboxone in the first place, more so maybe even worse than that. So, is medication or maintenance therapy a good idea? Use of an agonist a good idea? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Is it something to be on for the rest of your life? I don't know. There's probably some individuals that really will never change their personality, will never undo what they've learned will never get their body chemistry and, and the emotional system and all of the homeostatic response and the hedonic system back in proper balance and order, maybe they need to stay on it. There's also this chance, too, that people have predispositions to all sorts of emotional conditions. We'll use bipolar disorder as an example. And though opioid use, tolerance, withdrawal, protracted, prolonged opioid use, subsequent tolerance and withdrawal really does not mean that they're suffering bipolar, but it seems like that because, again, emotions, feeling, pain, the hedonic system looks an awful lot like some sort of condition or symptoms of the condition that goes along with bipolar disorder. But it's entirely possible there's comorbid conditions. It's even more possible that somebody is bipolar and has then took to using Suboxone, not Suboxone, but an opiate, and maybe subsequently found themselves using Suboxone as a self-medicating sort of intervention. And in that case, it's very complicated, which is, once more, why we really need to make sure Whoever makes the diagnosis is competent enough to be able to see the full clinical picture 
not just the opioid use disorder or not just opiate or substance-related and addictive disorders, but rather could see it in general behavioral health terms, comprehensively meaning could understand it in regards to the full diagnostic and classification system that the American Psychiatric Association Diagnostic Statistical Manual 5th Edition represents or references. If you don't, then you're going to miss the potential for there to be these syndromes, these complicating or comorbid, we used to call them, probably still do, dual diagnosis conditions. You can treat the opioid use disorder, but it won't treat the mental health concern either post-drug use or even, as we said a moment ago, pre-drug use, and the drug use then is self-medicating. All of the things then that go along with that can be an additional factor, risk factor. Not only the cravings, but you still have all of the emotional pain, dysregulation, behavioral health symptoms to contend with, which almost makes it then impossible without treatment to be able to stay off of the uh, opiates or some other medication even, substance, may not be prescribed, may be uh, not pharmaceutically manufactured or FDA approved, but just some other substance to still try to treat that concern. This is exactly why, though, we're talking about this in such a way on Word. The more information, again, you have, the better you'll understand it. The better you understand it, the more that you won't necessarily make the right diagnosis, but you'll know why it's important to go to the person you need to go to with the credentials that they need to have to be able to see it in the comprehensive way that is necessary to make sure they flesh it all out. They do the proper differential diagnosis. You're already at risk of failure, elevated risk, 85% chance of not succeeding. You need all that in your favor. You need the odds towards you rather than against you. So to do that, you need to go to a specialist, yes, but also a generalist, someone who is either specialist in all of the categories, which kind of then almost renders that a moot point, right? They're a generalist, but they have enough experience, not only in diagnostics, but in treatment, to be able to address that comprehensively. If you don't, then the specialist is just going to chase down those symptoms and leave the rest of it unaddressed. That is not a good standard or protocol of practice. You are not going to succeed. It'd be as if you, even with all this information, worse yet, uninformed, trying to make similar calls. You can't make a good judgment if you don't have good information or enough information. You go to the source of good information and then you go to the person who has experiencing experience making those judgments to help you make the call. And if you're in denial, if there's that psychological element of not wanting to face things, then you really need to have somebody in your family, 
your immediate social environment, what we would call your support system, to be able to assist you to get you to the right person. But even those individuals, and as we began this series of podcasts on Word about, again, substance-related and addictive disorders, I made a clear point about that. If not you that I'm speaking to, you know somebody. You know somebody, maybe immediately in your family, maybe an acquaintance, a friend, maybe an associate at work. They are not in the best, if even remotely so, a good place to make these judgments. They will, if it gets them in enough trouble and somebody steps in and says they have to, They may or may not listen to you if you try to do that before they, as all that would mean, hit bottom, experience these social, occupational, financial, health, and legal consequences, the problems, the troubles. But if you love them, if you're concerned about them, then trying to help them is the best way, even if you get resistance. And maybe it won't work the first time. Maybe it'll take 15 times. Maybe you won't last 15 times. But if you care about them and you do, hopefully one of those times they'll pay attention. Hopefully one of those times they'll heed your warning and they will allow you to give them some assistance because you're in the best position to be objective. You're the person that can see it with the clarity that they need. Your head, hopefully, is not messed up with all either the thinking psychologically that emerges or goes along with those kind of personality issues, maladaptive coping styles, all the hustle that goes into getting a substance, the running away from responsibilities, the lying to oneself and other people, the cheating, the stealing, all of those things. You represent a standard, a virtue, and a character that's different than what they've become. Not what they are at base, hopefully, but what they've become even. Maybe they are at base, but what they've become. That is so important. But again, it's equally important that lest you be codependent and not ask them about those things, not confront them, you allow them, and that's what codependency is, for whatever reason, it's not a good one, You allow them to continue and persist to the point where they get into such trouble where you could have intervened sooner. And certainly, if you're fixing all the trouble they're getting into, even if you should say, well, that's the only way they're going to learn is to hit bottom, maybe you do have to allow them to hit bottom. But at the same time, if you're fixing everything, you're just making it worse. The progression of the disease and disorder, all the complications that go along with it, the tolerance builds, the withdrawal, risk for withdrawal increases, so that you make it even harder for five weeks, two months, three months down the road to come off of it. Besides the obvious fact that there's, again, lethality attached to this. People die as a result of overdosing. And that is the end of all opiate use that is otherwise unchecked or unrestrained. It will eventually kill you. That is a fact. Because people can't, once they get into this sort of a pattern, they lose, the further they go, they lose that objectivity, the ability to self-regulate and come out of it. 
That is instrumentally so what really addiction is all about, that element of dependence and lost control, loss of self-management. That's how you know. You can do that by mistake and it's abuse. If you do it on a regular basis, it becomes basis and it becomes part of who you are and it defines your life, you're out of control. You've lost control. There's one other possible intervention, uh, which uh, is always short-term. Again, it it really does not guarantee necessarily that it's going to fix the problem any more quickly than the others that I've spoken of, particularly the medication assist, the outpatient psychotherapy, the American Society of Addiction Medicine, possibly we'll get into that on the next podcast, has broken down uh, levels of intervention based on symptoms. I'm going to get into that next podcast. But the DSM does not get into treatment. It just gets into diagnostics. But it does recognize that there is a point where a person loses capacity to think for themselves. They're unable to, again, make good decisions for themselves. And as a result, and that's what we're speaking to at this particular moment in our conversation, they have to be put into a controlled environment where really it's so restrictive They can't leave. Now, there's many variations of that. There's obviously jail. There's obviously prison. But then there's also behavioral health or mental health care. Uh, There's inpatient. There's uh, some sort of a uh, safe living, a transitional living. There's intensive outpatient programs. And again, uh, next time on the podcast, we'll get into those ASAM criterion of treatment and care. But, but the idea, though, is at some point to stop the individual from the inevitability of harming themselves, it is, it's a standard. We have come to the conclusion somebody needs to step in and stop them. It would be that all behavioral health has some element and dimension of that, whether we're treating substance abuse, chemical dependency, or other mental health concerns that have some degree of lethality, suicidality, homicidal intent attached to it, we can't knowingly, wittingly allow somebody to kill themselves. We can't necessarily single-handedly stop it, but we do have a mandatory reporting obligation to call local authorities, and if we know somebody is going to harm somebody else specifically, It goes even further as to notify the person that we believe is going to be harmed, even if it's a breach of confidentiality, for the sake of preserving that person. Uh, Literally so, they don't die. So they aren't hurt, harmed. Either, again, the individual we're treating, or if it's directed in sort of an outward, aggressive manner or a fashion towards somebody else, wanting to kill somebody else, again, homicide, we have a due duty legally and responsibly to tell that individual. That has to happen. We don't allow people to either kill themselves or kill other people without intervention. Once it's turned over to the proper law enforcement, once it's reported, then the obligation ends because, again, no one can single-handedly stop another person But with the police and with the authorities involved, they can. And with the judicial system, they can be committed to a facility for care. That is an option as well. 
And though I'm speaking to non-professionals, I do not want to imply that you can make that judgment call certainly any better than we can, but should not have to necessarily make such a judgment call. But it may come a point in time when you know someone is going to harm themselves. Call the local authorities. Call the police. If you know that they're part of harming someone else, even as with drugs, unfortunately, sometimes it is the person giving somebody else the shot, the IV, the hypodermic needle. Uh, If you are aiding someone in that fashion and you're the one that put it in their body, you are killing that person if they die. You need to call the proper authorities, which would begin with the local municipality, police, uh, if it's at a state level, whoever you can to advise them, and they at that point then make the ultimate decision whether to pursue it or not. So, unless we lose really perspective on all of this, it's nice to know all this information, It's nice to have all of this information available. It's good to be able to share the information, hoping somebody gets better. It's good to make good decisions, to share the information in hopes of making good decisions. If you happen to be someone who is an addict or subject to abuse or dependence of a substance, particularly an opiate. But ultimately, the reason we're discussing all this on Word is so that People can get better and not harm either themselves or other people. I was mentioning earlier, I believe, uh, if not in this podcast, a previous one, individuals who are addicts do not take very good care of themselves. And with that, they not only cause risk of harm to themselves, but they put themselves and then whoever might be around them in dangerous situations. Whether they have justification whether it's their own fault, you should step in and say, wait a minute, I can't in good conscience know that people are doing this because the implications aren't just the individual, it becomes all the people. And it can, as we know with this opioid epidemic, as they've called it of recent years, we know it can destroy and gut communities. It can morally and ethically bankrupt communities. It can destroy people and lives. It can affect unborn children so that when they're born, they're also dependent upon drugs and then have that for the rest of their life because of the developmental implications that go on when they're being formed, their bodies being formed. It is so contaminated with all this other chemistry, they never get normal. They have, in, in many ways, it's, it's a congenital sort of birth defect. We need to do everything we can lest eventually at some point, as with the epidemic, it begins to salt everyone and everything in such a way that it destroys not only the people who are doing it, but the people who otherwise haven't made those choices, done better with their life, but maybe miss the obvious choice of some even personal responsibility, accountability to try to stop it, if not for the sake of the individual who's doing it, at least for the sake of everyone else. So that's why we do this on Word. 
In that same spirit, I am really appreciative that you've joined me on this podcast, and I want to encourage you to come back. Again, this is Word with Dr. David Michael David Clay, and uh, next week on our next podcast, uh, I should say, uh, we'll be discussing the ASAM criterion and continue this discussion of uh, not only identification, but treatment, and then eventually we're going to chase down probably one of the most controversial topics. I'm going to try to bring some objectivity and empiricism to it, cannabis, and try to flesh out the truth from the fiction, uh, the realities from the myths as to uh, where it falls when it is uh, in regards to this idea of number 10 on the list of most addictive substances, and then would be listed, as it is, in the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual under Substance-Related and Addictive Disorders. Disorder meaning that it is maladaptive, that there is something disease about it. Again, thanks for joining me. Hope you'll join me on the next podcast.